0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest today is Clara Croston, the author of Credit, Fashion, Sex, Economies of Regard in Old Régime France, and the book was published by Duke University Press in 2013. Hi there, Claire.
1: Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for inviting
0: me. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I wonder if you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to, to work on France.
1: Okay. Um, so... I am uh, originally from Canada, and I grew up in Canada in the, um, I guess, in the 70s and 80s when um, French was obligatory for all kids um, in English-speaking Canada. Mm -hmm. I I think that might have changed now. And um, anyway, so we took French, and I I learned French, and I loved it. And um, when it turned out um, that I was not as brilliant as I believed a literary theorist Needed to be because that was my (laughs) first goal. Uh, I decided to do the safe thing and uh, become a a historian and at that point uh, realized that French would really come in handy and I could do France. I had had great... Um, teachers of French history in high school, a great undergrad professor at McGill, John Hellman, um, and uh, Francophiles in our family. I had actually never been to France, um, but uh, all things conspired to make me uh, decide to do French history.
0: And so then you did an undergraduate degree, as you said, at McGill, and then went on to graduate school. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience, Oh, your first trips to France?
1: (laughs) So the graduate school experience, um, that is a confession I have to make, although I've actually confessed it elsewhere. So to some people, this may not uh, be such a shocking revelation. Um, originally, what I did at McGill was 20th century intellectual history, and I also did feminist, um, literature and literary theory. And so I had, um, I was very excited to go off and do uh, a dissertation involving uh, feminism, literature, sex. And then uh, I had a conversation with uh, John Hellman at McGill, who told me that probably uh, it was going to be too competitive for me to get into a modern program because I had had quite a good time in Montreal in my first couple of years, uh, which is <laughs> on my grades. And so he said... Uh, this will infuriate all the early modernists, just apply to early modern. There's not so much competition. You'll get in, and you can always change your mind once you get there. Uh, Well, he didn't uh, reckon with um, my soon-to-be advisor, Stephen Kaplan at Cornell University, who took me quickly under his wing. Uh, There wasn't really much question of uh, the possibility of switching. And, in fact, I, I was so fascinated and delighted by the early modern period Um, from my first semester that I was actually very, very glad. Um, Although I still enjoy the modern period very much, uh, I guess my heart really was won by um, the old regime and by the 18th century. Mm -hmm. What about the subject of this book in particular? Well, so I I had a, um, the dissertation that I wrote at Cornell University was on seamstresses in the 18th century and the guild that they acquired. And um, it was sort of exciting, well, it was for me very exciting research on um, this very rare all-female guild composed of seamstresses um, that very early, it was established in 1675, it very quickly became um, one of the largest guilds in Paris, there was a huge demand among uh, girls and their families for a safe um, place to place them because this was an all-female trade, where the workshops uh, were composed of women, the clients were exclusively women. And I think um, for many families with a sort of 12 or 13-year-old girl, um, that they were interested in having her acquire a trade, uh, this was a safe and uh, good place to put them. And so uh, I wrote that dissertation. And um, as I wrote it, I began to think a lot about um, the daily lives of these women and the kinds of um, struggles that they faced, and one of the things that became clear, and other historians have written about this, is that debt and credit were extremely important aspects of their life. And so uh, I decided to take up the question of credit um, in my next book, And uh, but it made more sense to turn to a trade of merchants um, rather than artisans, because seamstresses actually didn't need um, as much capital for their businesses as um, a merchant trade would because their their customers actually bought the very expensive silk cloth and brought it to them, just like today you would bring cloth to your seamstress. And so um, I focused on fashion merchants instead, um, who did uh, uh, require a lot of operating um, credit for their businesses. Um, and so I had sort of conceived a book about economic credit, and um, I, I always like to try to combine economic history with the history of society and the history of culture, um, ideas about gender and representations of it. And so, um, you know, I was interested in studying also the conception of credit and how that fit in with ideas about fashion and ideas about gender. And that, um, as I talk about sort of uh, in the introduction and the first chapter of the book, it actually opened up uh, this huge new window um, that made the book much longer and much more complicated to write than I thought it would be. So my ch- plans actually really changed along the way.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, let's start with credit, Clara. You know, I think all of us think we might know what that means, but you begin the book with a set of with exploring these 17th century uh, definitions of credit, and then move into this discussion of credit in the in, in the old regime that you sustain throughout the book in different ways. But what did what did this word mean? How did it mean differently than what we think it means today? How was it used throughout early modern French design? And
1: that Actually, that is a, the, the question which is really the crux of the whole book. And that um, answering mm-hmm. the question or discovering that that actually was the key question is um, what led me in this sort of whole new direction for the book than the one I had anticipated. Because um, I was thinking of writing a kind of uh, part of the book, at least a chapter or so, doing um, a kind of intellectual history of the idea of credit. And so now we have, um, very fortunately, um, and I'm sure you use this in your own work and uh, the other authors you've talked to um, have probably done so as well, we have um, databases of published sources that are increasingly available from Google Books to more (laughs) specialized academic Mm -hmm. ones. So I just very sort of naively put the word credit in there, um, expecting to get sort of political economy treatises on the circulation of credit and capital in the economy. And I was really surprised um, when I did that, what came out was rarely actually economic, and it was much more often um, talking about credit as a form of um, what you might think of as social or cultural or even political capital. So Mm -hmm. the influence, sort of the, the, if you think of, uh, the English use of the word credit, like I, I give credit to somebody for for doing some some good deed or something, uh, it's it's in that sense of um, the reputation that you have, the positive reputation that you have, and the way that gives you access to influence over other people, to favors from other people, um, to um, obtaining different kinds of relationships, goods and services, all different kinds of valuable things, either tangible or intangible that you might want to acquire.
0: You say early on that the project began for you as an investigation of, you use the term circulation. And I'm just wondering um, in the in the world of your research and in the world of the book, what what are the differences between systems of circulation and systems of credit? Like how are these terms related and what are what do they?
1: Mean? Oh, that's a good question. So the, um, I guess the what I what I thought that I would find um, when I entered um, my term credit in there was that people would be talking about credit as a kind of um, closed system of circulation in which uh, goods or money were were moving around. And so, for example, one of the analogies that um, was often used in political economy to talk about uh, economic credit was. Um, you know the human body and the circulation of the blood, because that was discovered by Harvey mm. um, in 1628. The you know the, cir- the whole circulatory system of the blood in the human body was a discovery of the um, first decades of the 17th century, and so people adapt that to well, you see that's how money and credit circulate within an economy. And it was, and I was thinking, well, you could say fashion also circulates in this kind of. Um, uh, in a kind of closed system like that Where, you know, um, one person sees you wearing that And then they, they adopt it And, you know, it goes around like that In a circle And I think um, what I would say is, is the difference and that, That's a question that you're asking me Is that um, in practice I think people experienced um, the movement And the exchange of credit And the movement of fashion As much more let's say ambiguous and much more open-ended and much more complicated than a kind of circular movement of things. So that's the sort of neat abstract theoretical system Mm. of thinking about how things worked that we can find, um, in some texts, but actually, uh, it's, it's a, it's a much more open and messy process. And what fascinated me so much is that there's so much then overlapping, uh, it's not like you have a separate fashion system and a separate credit system or a separate economic system and a separate um, cultural system. Those things are perceived and experienced by people as completely intersecting and interlocking. And so, you know, you can translate that. And that's what, why credit is such a fantastic metaphor for the old regime, for their own way of thinking about their world, because you can you can convert through credit uh, a fashionable hat, uh, an invitation to dinner, a social relationship—all um, those things actually are, are a kind. They're, they're currencies that can that, that have equivalencies in each other. If you see what I mean, and that's mm-hmm. why. So, so I guess in the end, that's why I think the metaphor of circulation is kind of um, is helpful. Um, but if we think of closed systems of circulation, then I think it's it's um, misleading. Uh, And credit, in the way I've tried to describe it, is actually more helpful.
0: It's one of the fascinating things about the book, the way that you show that these systems and ways of thinking and experiencing the world overlap um, through the the old regime period. And then, of course, you know, if if I keep following the words in the title to begin with, just laying out these terms. So we've talked about credit, we've talked about fashion, and then, you know, you highlight from the introduction on the central role that gender and sexuality play in these things and how... Doing a book on credit and, and, and the overlaps with fashion that that has allowed mm-hmm. you to talk about women and gender and sexuality in, in, in some really interesting ways. Could you say a, a few words about that just sort of generally before we get into talking about the, the different sections sure. of the
1: book? Sure. Um, actually, the, the, the sex part is, um, the one part where, uh, I've had people, you know, the book just came out So I haven't heard from too many people about it yet But I have heard a couple of people say So, we get the credit and the fashion there could be a little more sex. <laughs> um, the way that, I, I mean, Duke did a wonderful job with the cover. If anyone's looking at the cover, the sex, you know, there are fewer words in sex. So the sex part of the title, you know, the cover got really big, which seems... It's true. It's true. I'm when looking at it right it, it's now. It's sex. <laughs> um, but th- there, re- there really is uh, a lot of sex in the book. Um, and so the, the, um, <laughs> I guess when I put credit and fashion together, it was to underline um the ways in which um, the credibility and the reputation that make credit possible, um, especially in the old regime, um, are so much uh, reliant on the embodiment of credibility. You know, performances and appearances of credibility are really important, especially in this period where um, the media is relatively limited, at least compared to the modern period, where eyewitnessing, you know, seeing people in the streets of Paris is such an important way to transmit information about either your economic credibility or social credibility. And so, um, uh, and along with the embodiment of appearances comes also uh, the creation of desire and the role of sexual desire as a a lever or a lever um, for acquiring credit. And especially because so much um, of my work focuses on gender. And I was really trying uh, along the way to explain um, how credit is available to women, and I describe it as a kind of gray market of power. Um, And so, uh, Mm -hmm. because women are excluded from formal authority, this is a very, very important um, way that they have access to very significant informal power, Um, not all of which, but some of which is leveraged through um, desire and through sexual relations. And that's kind of um, at least when people start to criticize credit in different ways, uh, and I talk about this uh, in the book, the um, one of the ways that they do so is by um, criticizing the way women use um, sexual sexual relations and sexual desire to acquire. Um, power that they normally shouldn't
0: have. Um, Claire, you have this kind of wonderful turn of phrase in the in the title of the of the book, uh, "Economies of Regard," and I was I was struck by this immediately the first time I heard about the book. And uh, you talk about it a little bit of the, in the introduction. And I wonder if you could t- tell us a little bit more about the origins of that phrase and of uh, of, of what it means and and how it's working for you throughout.
1: throughout sure. The book. So um, I borrowed this. Uh, Phrase actually, and I wrote and obtained email permission <laughs> before I did so from a great uh, economist named Abner Offer. Um, and he coined the term economy of regard, um, speaking of the contemporary that is the modern economy. And he, along with I think many other economists, um, in critiquing the kind of old classical model, neoclassical model of, um, you know, perfect free markets and anonymous free agents interacting in those markets um, was emphasizing the ongoing role of things like reputation and um, people's desire for prestige uh, in their economic um, interactions. And so uh, that's really important work that, um, of course, resonates a great deal with um, the old regime economy that I was um, writing about. But I, I tweaked his phrase um, a little bit by adding economies of regard to um, underline um, the the way that I was trying to link together different kinds of economies. You know, familial economies, uh, libidinal economies, vestimentary or uh, you know the economies of fashion. And so um, that uh, is one little tweak I made. And also, um, anyone who's listening who speaks a little bit of French will probably pick up on the pun. Um, implied there, mm-hmm. the jeu de mots, of uh, economies of regard, because um, Offner was referring really to um, uh, reputation and credibility, but I was wanting to highlight there the importance, as I was saying earlier, of the um, embodied nature of it, and the actual, the, the physical regard, you know, people's uh, appearance, mm-hmm. and how important that um, imp- appearance of credibility and the performance of credibility are. Um, and that goes back to everything I was saying earlier about the importance of fashion um, and the affinities between fashion and credit as um, two different kinds of systems for circulating information and also for assessing value, different kinds of value.
0: And It's interesting that, um, you know, as someone who doesn't work at all on this period, there was a lot of food for thought for me in the book about Uh, sort of different theoretical frameworks and ideas and, you know, performance and embodiment and then also something that you talk about in the introduction but then I think uh, engage with in different ways throughout the book or prove or or underline it in different ways throughout the book is this notion of um, Mm -hmm. capital, right? And you uh, discussed this a little bit in the beginning that, of course, as I started to read the book, I was waiting for you to talk about Bourdieu (laughs) and what you were going to say. And so could you say a little bit about... Um, that theoretical framework and how you're interacting with it. I mean, at some point you talk about how you're you're more interested in practices of credit and economy mm-hmm. rather than theories. But you do have some contribution to make in terms of how we think about theoretical frameworks like the idea of cultural capital. Uh-huh. So I was just wondering if you could say a few words sure.
1: about that. Sure. Um, well, Pierre Bourdieu's um, different forms of capital. His his ideas about um, the different forms of capital that uh, coexist and that interact with each other is obviously essential for my work. So um, he's, you know, he's written, he wrote at least about um, social capital and cultural capital and their importance, and drew people's attention to the fact that, um, for example, uh, you know, he has a great book uh, with another sociologist about. The role of um, that in school, the kids that we think are so brilliant, that exceed so naturally, that are just so smart, the the role of their cultural capital that they've acquired throughout their lives by having parents who were either educated or affluent enough to take them to museums and to the theater and to talk about books at home, that um, it disguises itself as in, as innate talent, but in fact, what it is is the accruing of Um, this kind of cultural capital, which then enables the kids to acquire social capital and also, of course, uh, further economic capital. And so I think, you know, whenever I'm trying to explain to people what I mean by these different forms of credit and their interaction with each other, of course, the easiest way to explain it is to turn back to Bourdieu. And many people know these ideas either by reading Bourdieu or as they've been popularized by other people. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense, and people know they, they get what I'm talking about. Um, but I I did try in the introduction, um, you know, to acknowledge that debt, but also to somewhat distance myself from Bourdieu. And I think, I mean, it's possible that people who are, uh, how shall I say, experts on Bourdieu um, may, uh, I mean, interested to hear how they react to my reading. But what I what I say in the introduction is that. Um, There's a suggestion um, in much of Bourdieu's writing on different forms of capital that the primordial form of capital is economic capital and that the social and the cultural Mm -hmm. are sort of disguised forms of the economic and what it really comes down to ultimately is the economic capital. And I think, um, at least for the period that I write about the 17th and the 18th centuries um, and the early 19th century, part of the argument that I'm trying to make here is that I don't think that that's the case. And so, um given uh all of the un, the um how shall I say, the the informality of much of the economy, um the 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 non-fixed nature of the value of money itself because the um the relationship between the livre as a unit of uh value and the actual coinage can be shifted by royal uh decree um and the various other elements of the economy that I discuss in the book, um It's actually, you know, economic value in and of itself is not all that clear or all that fixed. And and on top of it, I think for many people, um, and this is really what I spend a lot of time discussing in the book, um, and you may be planning to ask (laughs) me more questions about it later, but uh, I would just say now that um, I think that, you know, the issues of social and cultural capital could be equally as important to people, even more important to people Mm -hmm. than just money or economic capital um, for a variety of different reasons. And so I think at least for the old regime, credit is actually uh, a much more useful um, category to think about than capital.
0: Well, it does seem throughout the book really that you're showing the way that when we look at credit, it allows us to talk about, uh, you know, not just elites and sort of court and noble society, but a much broader sort of spectrum of social classes and groups, to talk about men and women, um, to talk about cultural, the cultural and social realm as well as the economic realm. So, so it does seem like a way into this much broader examination of old regime um, society. At some point, I think in the first chapter, you say, and I'm quoting you it's somewhere on page 50, 54, I think you said, credit was the informal, often hidden dynamic that explained why things happened the way they did um, in myriad areas of life. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, know how how you m- move into to that into in the book and how what role women play in that kind mm-hmm. of broader uh analysis of credit in old regimes um
1: so when i um you know typed the word credit or KG into the databases of published sources I, I there were you know enormous numbers of references started coming back at me and i sort of had to start uh, classifying them to try and analyze them, you know, systematically and figure out what I was really dealing with here. Because in fact, uh, I was quite surprised to realize there was no, or at least there was not much secondary literature on this more um, immaterial notion of credit as I've been discussing it. So when I got the hits back um, from the databases, I I thought, wow, there's this whole expanded notion of credit uh, that can be political or cultural or social let me go find the books written about that. And so I sort of, you know, started looking for bibliography, and I, I realized, wow, nobody has has really written about this. They had written about it in political terms, at least um, at the French court, um, which is very, which is sort of my starting place, and, and I discussed this in the book. But the ways in which um, credit wasn't just about the mutual exchange of influence and rep- and favors between courtiers, but... You know was also related to p- who you got married to, uh, the power of the Jesuits, um, the way missionaries worked in different places. Uh, nobody had really taken on that whole nexus of of credit. Um, what a great source that I cite in the book described as this you know the regime of credit in France and so um that's really just by by assessing the sources that I was that were coming back to me and from the databases. Um, opened this world to me and convinced me that even though it wasn't my original plan, um, I needed to, to start writing about it. But the obvious place to start is really at the court, um, because that's where historians had noted it before. And that's where you find quite a few sources. And just to give you a brief example, um, a lot of people are familiar with the memoirs of the Duke de Saint-Simon, who was at the court of Louis Fourteenth at Versailles. And he was sort of, um, opposed in many ways to things that Louis XIV was doing, and so his memoirs are kind of cynical and sometimes a little bitter. And But he uses this idea of the credit of, you know, the king's mistress, Madame de Metenon, or the credit of different ministers, as a way to account for um, how important decisions get made, who gets different patronage posts, why things happen the way they do in a monarchical system. He explains this as due to um, the kind of if you imagine you know a stock exchange, he's taking the, the daily readings of the fluctuations of everybody's credit power. And for him, this explains why things happen the way they do, why important um, what we would call political decisions um, get made. And then uh, I, I started there and then I expanded out to talk. Um, about the various other realms of um, French life that are affected, I mean, in, in which similar analyses are being made in contemporary sources.
0: You be- begin the book, Claire, with this sort of pretty impressive uh, d- discussion of of the the credit as a category of analysis, and then and 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 then um, with this discussion of of the critiques mm-hmm. of credit. You know, this and that you've just begun to talk about again um, from. Uh, the period of Louis the Fourteenth through to to, to Louis the Fifteenth, so from the late seventeenth century to the mid eighteenth century, and I'm just wondering, you know, if you could say what what changes in this sweep that you do, this kind of narrative that you trace um, of perceptions of credit and especially sort of opponents of credit and and where those those voices of opposition are coming from and what the arguments they're making are. What would you say, in general terms, changes from the late seventeenth to the mid eighteenth century in terms of perceptions and and understandings of
1: well, that. Roxanne, that's a great question. And it's actually, um, it, it, it's sort of a question at the heart of the book, which plagued me a great deal because, uh, mm. I mean, I really struggled mm. with this question because um, on the one hand, and maybe this shouldn't be so surprising, I guess, um, it, it's sort of a 18th century angst. I mean, an angst of 18th century is um, that uh, the, um, you know, why do I start the first chapter where I'm talking about these different ideas about credit? In in, in the it, I get to, I sort of talk a lot about the last decades of the 17th century and I kind of leave it there. Um, it's because I got so many hits on my database query that I ran out of time and ability to analyze them. So I, I got <laughs> to Madame de Sevigny, and I was like, okay, enough. I, I've have talked about so many different things, um, and and it, and it seemed to me as I read through that I mean I read the stuff from the 18th century that a lot of it stayed very much the same. And so the same discussion of, you know, the credit of a wife with her husband, the credit of um, the angels with God in heaven, or the saints, sorry, with God, you know, those kinds, that kind of analysis of credit operating in multi, multiple sectors of life, you could have the same quotations basically running from 1650 at least to the French Revolution. So in some ways... It doesn't change, and one of the things that doesn't change is that women, especially women who are, um, you know, born into noble or wealthy families, women have a great deal of access to um, credit in all its many guises, and people take that to be completely normal. It's normal to um, flatter the credit of a princess, it's normal to write to the wife of the president of the parliament, to beg for her credit, to get your lawsuit, um, um, you know, to win your lawsuit, and so in some ways, Things don't change, and and I wanted to be, um, I wanted to give space to that narrative in the book as well, because I think that that the you know the problem of writing 18th century is, of course, we have this revolution looming over us, and we we end up often writing the story towards the ending, you know, I mean, in a very teleological way, we can't help but write towards, you know, to explain why this thing happens, whether explicitly or implicitly, and I and I and I think in women's history. That has, or the history of gender, that has been very strong. And so um, I I was trying to be true to what I saw in the sources, which is in some ways, things don't change. There's a long durée of this way of thinking about credit that is certainly the case. However, and I'm sorry it's taking me a long time to get to the critique part. No, no, um, go ahead. The critique part is also true as well, which is that um, because credit um, is is the kind of, as I say that, you know, the secret uh, knowledge that everybody has about how things really happen. Um, it, it, it's not official and it's not authorized and it doesn't follow always the normal hierarchies of the old regime text, social taxonomy. Um, and so it, it and also it's, it's not subject to kind of normative, um, uh, official rules in the same way or regulations. And so, um, You have people who feel marginalized and persecuted and oppressed for different reasons who, among their different denunciations of what's happening in France, uh, they denounce credit as this capricious and abusive form of power that people use to crush those underneath them. And so um, you have people like the Jansenists or the quietists using the language saying, you know, Jesus had no credit that was what was so special about him. And we also have, credit and we're being crushed. Um, and then you also have moralizers, you know, against uh, La Bruyère and others who critique the court by saying, oh, everything there is credit and self-interest. And um, but, and, and this starts to move in, you know, I guess a politically significant way um, during the um, the Regency after the death of Louis Fourteenth, when people can be a little more outspoken in criticism and they're thinking through well, what. what what can we do um, to make this government um, less susceptible to a turn towards a kind of despotism? And one thing they say is, uh, different people say, is the credit of women at court is a problem. Um, and so this is identified um, it's not totally discredited and it doesn't become an enormous issue for many people. It remains, as I've said, totally normal. And yet there's a kind of thread that picks up. And what interested me is that this is well before the, um, now notorious critique of Jean-Jacques Rousseau against public women. You already see in the restoration, um, a fair amount of criticism directed at the powerful credit of women at court through sex and sexual desire. Um, and, and this, uh, develops over time and so i get eventually in the book to the chapter on marie antoinette where um the her multiple credit failures um become a a target but uh there there is and this is what i'm talking about in chapter two there's a long kind of prehistory to that which starts to ramp up in the time of um the regency of uh, um after the death of louis the 14th well
0: in the third and fourth chapters of the book Clara, is when you really start to move. I mean, you talk about fashion and sex and gender <laughs> before this, but but you really start to move into you know these, these wonderful turns of phrase, the intertwined circuits of credit, fashion, sex, and then I'm um, talking about fashion merchants. So I wanted to ask you about uh, that sort of section of the book and how you're looking at the you I, you have this there's this wonderful quote on page 137 where you say that credit and fashion functioned as information systems based on rapidly evolving and unequally accessible forms of knowledge. So I guess I'm wondering you know what does this mean? I think, especially from a contemporary reader's perspective, that is both you know really provocative because <laughs> we have our own ways of talking about information systems. But I think it's a really interesting way to go back to the 18th century and and to talk about these things. So I wanted to ask you about that, and then. You know, moving into – you talk about this in Chapter 3 and Chapter 4 um, and continue to talk about these the, – the female fashion trade of, of, of the 18th century and fashion merchants. So I, I was wondering if you could talk about the these overlaps between credit and fashion and then, you know, move into the kind of practical – experts and actors in in the practices of credit and fashion that you that you start to get into in more detail in the middle of the book
1: okay so the um yeah the chapter three moves us to to discuss fashion sort of explicitly and to talk about the um the ways in which um well to go back to the sort of original plan that i had in the book to think about fashion and credit as forms of circulation and i wasn't i guess at the very beginning, I, I don't know what book I would have written if I had ended up writing that book. But given the book that I did write, um, what I was uh, I was interested in thinking about were there um, affinities between the ways that credit functioned and the way that fashion functioned. And I don't know if that seems, you know, from a c- contemporary person's perspective, really wacky and strange. But when I thought about it, it, it to me it seemed to make a lot of sense because. Um, in the 18th century, there's no credit bureau or credit, you know, now you want to know your credit score and you, they give you this precise number, right? Um, there was no such thing in the 18th century. And so, um, people, a lot of the, the job, because one thing just to say very quickly is that, um, other historians have established this before me, most, uh, commercial exchange happens on credit. So there's not that much buying and selling that involves actual physical exchange of money, for various reasons, but a lot of it is happening um, uh, on credit, wholesale and retail. And so um, uh, a lot of people's attention was given over to assessing the credit worthiness of the people that they were dealing with. Should I sell to them on credit or also... the the attitudes toward credit is this person going to ask me for the money now are they going to let me have two more weeks should i buy from this merchant who will be a little bit more patient or should i go you know what strategy should i use to distribute my uh credit across different um, suppliers or um etc and so assessing uh the value of people and of things was really important um, and took a lot of time and i think uh, and, and, and this information circulates, and it circulated, given the um, limited uh, print media that existed, it circulated through um, networks that were very much oral, and also, as I've said, visual. You know, you have to watch, is the guy looking me straight in the eye? Is he fidgeting? Uh, how can I judge him or her? And, um, the, and the, so therefore, um, as this sort of economics jargon, these were uh, asymmetric information networks some people had more knowledge than others uh it was a struggle to gain this knowledge if you had knowledge you might not want to share it with other people um etc and so that's credit and fashion i would you know i came to the conclusion that fashion um functioned in quite similar ways which is uh who who makes something fashionable just like you know who says what how much credit you can have there's no one person it's an anonymous system and it's a collective judgment passed You know, one of the things that the the um, court manuals and other literature of the time make clear is that you know you can try and make your own make a fashion launch a fashion. If you're successful, wow, you're you know you can gain in prestige by doing that. If you fail, though, it's quite risky. And so, um, anyway, thinking it through, it seemed to me. Um, that, that the way information about fashion circulated and the way judgments were formed and the kind of stakes uh, that were at risk, all that, that there were multiple affinities between cre- credit and fashion. And then when you start to look uh, more closely at the literature, what's interesting is that, in fact, they, they often use these words interchangeably, you know, things like vogue and mode and credit. Um, they use them to, to, to mean the same thing in many um Cases and so they're sort of aware of and playing with those affinities and I and I end um, chapter three by talking about the uh, well I talk about the ways in which uh, just like credit you know functions across many spheres fashion also functioned across many spheres of life and so we're not just talking about dresses we're talking about you know there's a there's a satirical and a critical um, literature about the way that there are fashions of eating and fashions of speaking, fashions of gesture, fashions of, of whatever you can think of. And in the end, uh, people also become items of fashion. And so there's a wonderful phrase, l'homme à la mode, uh, which becomes quite popular mm. in the 18th century to talk about the man who is himself the object of fashion. Um, and that's sort of, for some people, the ultimate ridiculous thing, um, but it's a question of uh, you know a person himself being elevated in that way. And uh, at least in the 18th century, as I figured out, it's it's often because of his uh, sexual desirability to women, uh, in fact, that he becomes a la mode. Um, sorry, I, that I I didn't get to the practicalities there, but that's the sort of conceptual way I think about the information systems of um, fashion and credit resembling each other.
0: Well, and I, I have more questions on that, I'll, but I will. I don't want to take us down a rabbit hole, but I, I kept thinking as I was uh reading the book and I even though I am a twentieth century historian I do teach a fourth year seminar uh-huh. on the French Revolution that you know we look at the eighteenth century before we get into you know obviously the revolution itself and I kept thinking, Oh this parts of this book would be such a great companion piece to our viewing of like uh-huh. films or reading literature like Les Liaisons okay. or ridicule. I kept thinking about ridicule yeah, look- <laughs> And how much of that film, this book, illuminates and vice versa. Like, they're kind of
1: good companions. Yeah, I mean, that's what I kept thinking as I was writing the book, which is, I think it had to be said, but at some level, this is what we all... You know, this is what they all already knew about their century and this is what we already knew intuitively about their century. Um, everything that we see in a movie like Liaison d'Angereuse and the importance of clothing and performing and acting and credibility and reputation and the stakes that people were playing and the interaction of their social position, but also their sex lives, but also money, you know, it it it, it um it, it really brings everything together and it illuminates what we already New in many ways.
0: Well, and it also illuminates just to move into that that issue of the, oh. the practicalities. I mean, those are the maybe mo- most sensational, most uh, w- romantic, uh, w- with a, a lower case R, um, aspects of the old regime and the and and the sort of lead up to the revolution that that we all know and that is there in popular culture, well beyond mm-hmm. you know the walls of universities and scholars and stuff. But but you also illuminate in the book this. Uh, you connect I guess that uh, you know s- set of appearances and performances and and the kind of literary imagination that goes along with the the old regime to the very real workings of and maybe this is you know the your previous book that that allows you to do this to the fashion trade and to fashion merchants and so i guess you know grouping together because we won't have time to talk about each chapter in detail but grouping together is sort of some of the things you get at at, in Mm -hmm. the center um the middle of the book you know what was a fashion merchant and what was this social magic that they performed you know what do you have to say about that origins and growth of the trade and relations Mm -hmm. with clients and some of these kinds of things in relationship to these Uh big ideas, these sort of abstract and overlapping notions of credit and fashion. And then I guess I also want to ask you to tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about some of the main characters of the book, you know, especially this Rose Bertin, who I, you know, never heard (laughs) of um, myself, but, but. You know who's this really important figure in the kind of behind the scenes, not so behind the scenes, but the, in the story that we know of Marie Antoinette and, and fashion and the revolution and sex and credit and all of these things. But you come at this in this really uh, uh-huh. practical,
1: uh, material way. And, and I'd just love to hear you say more. Yeah, that I, the, the, when I get to those chapters, which I guess are chapter starting chapter 4, 5, uh, and 6, that that's really um, drawing on the kind of uh my my origins as a historian in a way, and so mm-hmm. that's where I talk about the economic and the social history of credit. and for me, um methodologically, epistemologically even but also probably ethically, it was really important to have I mean that's sort of the core uh, of the book, I guess I would say, which is um the first chapters illuminate and draw together under this paradigm of credit, many elements of the old regime um, that are familiar to many people, but it gives us a new way of understanding how it all fits together. Um, But having done that, uh, what was really important to me was to say, well, okay, how does this intersect with the lives of ordinary people? And does this whole regime of credit that I talk about in the first chapters, does it have anything to do with ordinary people? Or is this all happening in, you know, some salon or boudoir somewhere? Um, and in fact, what I try to show is that it, it, it's incredibly intertwined with the lives of ordinary people. It's ordinary people that make it possible. Um, but then again, of course, it shapes uh, tremendously how those ordinary people live their lives. Um, and also the dynamic of the 18th century. And so um, I I, I focus on fashion merchants. Um, They are, not so much is known about them, and I've tried to contribute in this book to increasing our knowledge of them. Um, The seamstresses get their independent guild in 1675, um, and I think that is a really important moment in the history of um, the, the garment trades and in the history of fashion and gender, um, and its relationship to gender, I guess I should say, in the um, period. And um, because th- they established this very large all-female workforce who are only allowed to make women's clothing. And as I said earlier, many, many thousands of women stream into this trade and their labor is relatively cheap. And so you have a huge push from the supply side of women, skilled artisans, they're begging to make clothes for other women. Um, and I think the fashion merchants build on this opportunity um they uh the the seamstress is so clothing the fashion merchants um are are one step up the economic food chain which is that they um they make the decorations for the dress so if you imagine all those images from liaison dangereuse or whatever the boucher paintings all of that very decorative kind of rococo stuff on the exterior of the dress the ruffles and the trimmings that is the domain of the fashion merchant. Um, and that's obviously very expensive, often materials that they're working with. Um, and then you also, they make things for the head and shoulders. So the fabulous hats, the three feet tall poofs, as they were called, these big headdresses, you know, the ones with the the, the ship, that's the, the cover of the book has this big ship on it. Um, right. That The fashion merchants make those. And so, um, and what what you see, uh, happening is a kind of collaboration in in the crafting of the fashionable appearances that allow women of certain social and economic groups to to claim the prestige of fashion. Um, that's only made possible through the collaboration of these specialized artisans and merchants, many of them women, um, who are emerging into the French economy in growing numbers across the eighteenth century. Um, who, who work with them, and they gain their own uh, credit within their trade, you know, for, for what they're doing. But they also make it possible um, for the, you know, Duchess to make the big splash with her new fashionable headdress. And so there's a kind of um, interaction uh, between them. And what it means, I argue, in the book is that the, those dynamics of credit that I try to lay out in the first part of the book are, in fact, familiar to people of the people. It's not as though – I mean, a lot of people – Uh, have written as though those kind of um, questions were really uniquely for the upper echelons of society and didn't touch the people lower down. But I think for the people, at least in the luxury trades, they had to understand Uh, those dynamics. Otherwise, there's no way that they could succeed. Um, And on top of it, of course, they're also selling all their goods on credit and they're relying on credit. And because I've tried to argue earlier that the kind of dynamics of reputation, credibility, um, assessing information and assessing value are similar, whether we're talking about economic or social or political credit. In fact. They're struggling in their own lives with all of the difficulties of juggling multiple credit interactions um, that anybody else is. So, I mean, the stakes, uh, are, you know, are quite similar um, among these different groups of people.
0: I want to hear you say a little bit more about this, Rose Bertin, because she's she's sort of the superstar of this part of the book in some ways. and And, you know, you're talking about a whole uh, field of... People yeah. like her, but she's kind of yeah, the, she's the, star. the the centerpiece. <laughs> um and and so yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about her and and I guess uh, you know, moving forward that the book does kind of move into that territory of thinking about the causes of the French Revolution and, you know, by talking about Marie Antoinette who I guess symbolizes this nexus yeah. of credit fashion sex exactly. better than anybody. Um, I wonder what we learn about what, what, what do we learn about Marie Antoinette and, and the origins of the revolution from the book yeah. that, that what do you see as the book's contribution to those debates? And,
1: and- so, uh, Rose Bertin, she may be familiar to, to some listeners. Um, my, I have a sort of dream of a screenplay one day because that would blow all the Marie Antoinette movies out of the water because she really a fascinating, uh, character. She's born in Abbeville to a very modest family. Um, there's a, there's an autobiography supposedly written by her, which is, of course, com- I think completely fake from the first decades of the 19th century that some, um, earlier historians have sort of quoted from as though it actually tells her life story, which I think is, uh, sort of ridiculous. But anyway, she, she comes somehow from Abbeville, <laughs> um, probably as it says in that thing, has worked professionally as a shop girl already in the provinces. But she comes to, um, Paris eventually opens her own shop, acquires the notice of some prominent um, court women, and is eventually um, presented to, um, I think, now I'm forgetting myself, by the Duchesse de Chac, one of Marie Antoinette's um, close friends, introduces her to um, Marie Antoinette when she's still the Dauphine that is uh, married to the heir of the throne. And she um, establishes a very close relationship with Marie Antoinette, which lasts up until the revolution. She's actually bringing her um, new dresses uh, in prison uh, to the queen uh, during the revolution, this, and then she uh, leaves France to kind of save herself shortly before the execution of the queen. But she, um, anyway, she, she 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 establishes this relationship, which epitomizes uh, incredibly aptly and brilliantly the kinds of relationships and the kind of mutual dependence and interaction I was talking about a minute ago, because um, Marie Antoinette. Um, has a difficult relationship with her husband. They are uh, unable to consummate their marriage, or at least he is unable to consummate it for the first eight years. Um, France has been traditionally the enemy of Austria she's the daughter of the Austrian empress and the marriage is the result of the diplomatic revolution which has created this new very controversial um alliance between France and Austria that many people don't like um this is uh, she comes to France in the mid 1770s as a as a adolescent basically <clears throat> and she sorry she um and so one of, and Kellen Weber has written a brilliant book about this one of the things that um Marie Antoinette does to try and 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 gain some um, some authority for herself, and to, to gain some space for herself is to use fashion as um, to, to 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 attract attention and to show that she's leading fashion, and therefore that the court women are following her, um, and that therefore she has some you know kind of authority, given that her authority otherwise is so weak, um, or that her position anyway at court is so weak, and so um, and Rose Bertin becomes the key collaborator in her attempt to lead fashion. And their relationship becomes so important that uh, Marie Antoinette really violates existing court etiquette to draw Rose Bertin closer to her. She receives her in her in a private cabinet, dismisses all the ladies in waiting, um, which scandalizes and shocks people. She mm-hmm. uh, invites her to court spectacles and makes sure publicly that she gets the best space. She um, does this wonderful thing of uh, when the, the royal carriages are going through the city and Rose Bertin comes out on her balcony with her shop girls, uh, the queen actually... Salutes her in, in front of everyone, which obliges the entire royal train as well as the royal family to publicly uh, salute this, you know, shock woman, uh, which is shocking again and scandalous. Mm-hmm. And so, but the, 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 um, you know, they, the, it, it's a kind of mutual self fashioning, uh, if I can use yeah. that pun, uh, in which the queen has her own interests. Uh, and there's a wonderful correspondence among the, the, you know, spies... They're not spies, but the people sent by uh, the Austrian empress to watch over and and supervise and advise her daughter about how to increase her credit. What can we do to make sure her credit is not abused, that other people's credit don't grow instead of hers? I mean, this dialogue about women's credit at court is very much ongoing uh, with regard to Marie Antoinette. Um, And uh, so she wants to build her credit. She wants to use fashion as a way to do so. And meanwhile, Rose Bertin is lording it over all the other women in Paris, treating duchesses and marquises kind of very arrogantly. And, uh, she seemed to be very haughty based on the queen's patronage. Um, and in the book, I, I, you know, analyze the kind of cascade of credit coming out of that relationship with the queen and all the financial transactions that she does, the cultural credit that she claims. And, um, in the end, when, uh, I mean, sort of the contribution to answer your question that I think, uh, well, one of the contributions that I think is important is to show that um, I learned a lot and I admire very much the historiography on Marie Antoinette and the focus on her sexuality uh, as a big problem and depictions of her as voracious and uh, lesbian mm-hmm. and incestuous. Um, but I try to argue that, in fact, it's not just the sex. If you, if you substitute for the sex, Credit in all the different ways I've tried to explain it, and you think back to that long history of criticizing women's access to credit at court through sex, um, it helps you much better understand um, the criticism of Marie Antoinette and also why her multiple credit failures could stand so well as a symbol for this failing old regime, which is, of course, as we know, bankrupt, and which is led to call the states general, etc., um, as a result of the, the the credit crisis that the government is facing. And so I think uh, what I've, I'm trying to do is show, um, not go back to the old financial, into you know, a simplistic financial crisis explanation of the revolution, but to show the ways in which this multiple um, faceted regime of credit, um, as one of her advisors, it's his phrase, uh, that 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 really helps us understand what the what the the criticism of the problem of the old regime.
0: Well, and it seems to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, Claire, but it seems to me that those chapters that really focus on that very elite, like the pocket, the very uh, elite, most elite pocket of the elite world, um, is kind of then echoed in the last chapter of the book, where you're. Uh, challenging maybe some of our, and again, maybe this is just my 20th century historian's Mm -hmm. ignorance, but some of those notions about a kind of rigid male household authority in the old regime by looking at the ways that, you know, in day-to-day life and, you know, less spectacular consumers, female Mm -hmm. consumers um, in old regime society also Used credit, used their husband's credit, and, uh-huh. and that this kind of gets at maybe some of our more traditional understandings of male authority in the 18th century. Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are on
1: on that. Uh huh. Yeah. So I, I I wanted to end by kind of switching the perspective away from um, as you said the court and uh, the queen, but also away from you know the the previous chapters discussed the producers of goods. On credit, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about consumption. And um, what what I found was that uh, the, the idea that women are financially married women, especially, are very financially restricted; that they're completely under the authority of their husbands. That only works as long as you don't acknowledge the um, vital importance of credit in economic exchange. And once you realize that most people are buying and selling on credit, and then you also realize. That um, the 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 legal authorities in their treatises on 18th century law write that um, women have the implicit capacity to buy and sell on their husband's credit without you know any kind of formal approval. You realize actually that women do have much more uh, married women do have a lot more financial flexibility than you realize, and it may have been the case you know centuries earlier when that loophole was conceived that it wasn't such a big deal. But when you have what historians have called the consumer revolution taking off, um, in the middle of the 18th century, the, the, the people's, uh, there's a lot more stuff to buy, a lot more shops to tempt you into buying. And I think, um, it starts to play quite an important economic, uh, role. And, and I, I also wanted to, um, I thought it was sort of an, an interesting way to, a new way to think about the marriage relationship. Um, and to think of, of the husband's credit, of his um, bestowing of his credit on the wife as a crucial part of the marriage relationship, and that how do you know when the marriage is broken? It's when he says, you know, you can't buy on my credit anymore, go live in the provinces, that trust is gone. And and I don't think people have really talked very much about um, that trust, economic trust that the husband places in his wife as being part of the marriage bond.
0: Well, Claire, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I, um, you know, I, I want to keep talking to you about the book, but I also want to find out uh, a little bit about what you're working on now. And I kind of want you to say that one of the projects is a screenplay on Louis <laughs> well, Bertin but uh, you're probably working on some other things. So, um, what where is your work taking you these days?
1: Well, I'm actually in Paris as we speak, and I am. Uh... Writing, uh, I I have a wonderful grant from the uh, ACLS, the American Council of Learned Societies, uh, to do a a long uh, postponed project um, that I'm working on with my uh, actually dissertation, uh, former dissertation advisor, Steve Kaplan, and a wonderful French historian named Claire Lumercier, who's a 19th century historian primarily. And um, we're writing a book about apprenticeship. Mm. Uh, And what is uh, particularly exciting is that we're conceiving it as a book that will start somewhere in the 1670s but go up until probably the 1880s um, and treat the revolution but not be fixated on the revolution and really try and understand what happens to this institution of apprenticeship with all of its um, economic importance but its also role uh, in social formation and social reproduction from uh, the 1670s up to the end of the 19th century.
0: Well, it sounds like a fascinating study and I hope I'll get a chance to talk to well, all three of you, that would be an interesting that be setup. set up. We'll try to figure out the technology for that. Uh, well, Claire, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and for writing this uh, really, really interesting uh, and rich book.
1: Well, thank you, Roxanne. It's been great to talk to you, and I'm really grateful. I know it's a long book, so thank you uh, for making your way through it. And also, it was really uh, a great pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to New Books in French Studies. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you'll join us again next time.